0: Well, good morning, Watermark. How are we doing today? Hey, it's uh, so good to see you. If this is your first time around here, let me just introduce myself to you. My name is Timothy Atik, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And today, we are starting a new series that is going to be weeks long through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Peter And I'll just tell you this, as I was preparing for this message in this series, I was reminded of something that happened almost 30 years ago when I was in high school, and I really haven't thought about it much since then. But when I was in high school, I ran cross-country and track for Highland Park High School, go Scots. And uh, when I was in high school, I was a follower of Jesus, I became a Christian at a young age and When I was in high school, I was actively seeking to live out my faith. Uh, But I remember this one track race in particular. I was running the 800 and was having a terrible race. Like I was in the middle of the race and I was just so discouraged. I was so disappointed in how the race was going that I became angry about how things were going. And when I crossed the finish line, I was so frustrated with how i had run that i just proceeded to let out every cuss word that i could think of in that moment like it didn't they didn't make sense like they didn't fit together i didn't form a sentence with cuss words i didn't evaluate this cuss word if you pair it with this one it makes more impact no it was just every cuss word that i could think to say i said in that moment in my coach who was not a follower of Jesus Christ, was standing right there at the finish line and he heard heard all of it. And he really didn't address it in the moment, but we just kind of went our ways. And on Monday, when I showed up to track practice, my coach, incredible coach, he had this routine where he would hand each runner like a personalized sheet that had their workout for the week. And then it would have a note from the coach speaking to the previous race. And in his note to me, here's what he said. He 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 was referring to me just letting loose at the end of my race. And here's what he said. He said, that is not who I know you to be. That's what he said that is not who i know you to be. He knew that i was a christian, he knew what i stood for. He himself was not a believer, but he knew the the life that i was trying to live and he just said that's not who i know you to be and i would encourage you to never let that happen again. And as i told my wife that story last night, she was like, that doesn't sound like you at all and i was like, that's the point. Like that's that, that's, that's the point. And if my mom is watching this, mom, that happened 30 years ago. Like, I've changed, I promise. But the reason I tell you that is because when you look in the scriptures, the scriptures refers to the Christian life as a race, and there's going to be times where you're really pleased with how you're running the Christian life, and there's going to be other times where you're not. Like, there are going to be times when race conditions are very unenjoyable. Maybe the storms of life comes. It's more windy than you would hope it would be, and you're just not running that well. And what we're going to see as we step into the book of 1 Peter this morning is one of the most important things for you to know when you are running the Christian life is this, your i Identity will shape your daily activity. Like if you want to be someone who runs well, then my greatest encouragement to you coming from the book of First Peter this morning is this, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Today, we're going to see Peter writing to a group of people who are in the midst of the race of the Christian life, and they're, they're dealing with all sorts of suffering and persecution because of their faith. The race has gotten tough. And you want to know what Peter's greatest encouragement is going to be to them right out of the gate, right at the start of the book? His greatest encouragement to them is this, remember who you are. Don't be like me that freshman year of high school. Don't don't forget who you are. Remember. Remember your identity and let your identity shape your day-to-day activity. So I just want you to see how Peter starts his book. We're just looking at the first two verses this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what he says in the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion to, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, in Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. These first two verses are all about Identity. And as we're going to see, Peter is going to remind his readers of three things. Number one, he's going to remind his readers of the reality of their identity, who they are. Number two, he's going to remind them of the reasons for their identity. He's going to tell them how they became, who they are. And number three, he's going to remind them of the result of their identity, okay? And as he reminds his readers of these things, he is reminding us of these things. Now, I'm just going to say, I love that we're only looking at two verses this morning. If you look at your Bible and what your Bible titles these two verses, if it's anything like my Bible, it just labels them greeting. Like this is just the greeting. So whenever you read your Bible, especially the letters in the New Testament, these are like the throwaway verses. These are like the formalities. It's like, okay, so-and-so is writing to so-and-so and and great, now that we got that over with, let's get into the part that actually matters. But I'm going to tell you these two verses are two of the richest verses theologically that I have taught during my first year here at Watermark Community Church. So Those of you who geek out on theology, you're going to be all about it, and you're going to be emailing me critiques this week. And the rest of you, buckle up. We'll see what happens, all right? So here we go. What I want to do is I just want to walk very carefully through these two verses and just take them really word for word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. It starts out and it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, So that just reminds us who's writing. We know a lot about Peter. Even if you're new to the church and new to the Bible, there is a good chance that you've heard of Peter. Okay, Peter was this impulsive uh, guy from Galilee. He was a fisherman who dropped everything all at once to follow Jesus full time. Jesus had 12 really close friends, but among those 12, there was three that he spent the most time with. They were kind of his inner circle, and Peter was one of those guys. And the thing that I love about Peter is that everything was either really great or really bad. Like he had high highs and low lows. On a scale of one to 10, it was always a one or a two or a nine or a 10. Peter never lived life at a four or a five. I'll just give you some examples. Like he had a really high high where he confessed that Jesus Christ was in fact the Christ and Jesus praised him for it. And in the same conversation, Peter argues with Jesus about his crucifixion and Jesus calls him Satan. That's a massive turn of events. Peter walked on water and then he sank in that same water. Peter was the guy who was a, terrible swordsman who when Jesus was being arrested, he drew a sword and only got the guy's ear. Like he's either really precise or really bad with a sword. But he cut off a guy's ear and then hours, he cut off a guy's ear trying to defend Jesus and hours later he denied Jesus three times. But what you see is after Jesus rises from the dead, he meets with Peter, he restores Peter. They have this really sweet moment where Jesus erases his failures and then he calls Peter to play a key role in the formation of the church. And so then you step into the book of Acts where you see the church of Jesus Christ beginning to catch fire. And where do we see Peter? We see Peter preaching on opening day of the church. And he gives a message and 3,000 people put their trust in Christ. And then when you read the rest of the book of Acts, like Peter spent his life suffering for the gospel. He boldly proclaimed the gospel. He was imprisoned for the gospel. Tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down as a martyr. This is who's writing 1 Peter. This is a guy who's well acquainted with suffering for Jesus, but he's a guy who had a wild love for Jesus. It says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's really important because the fact that he's an apostle established his authority to be writing this letter. Peter was an apostle because Jesus Christ commissioned him as an apostle. Jesus Christ set authority on Peter, but not just Peter, but on a group of men to be the apostles and Peter was one of them. But one of the things that authenticated Peter as an apostle was his ability to speak rightly about the person of Jesus Christ. When Peter says that he's an apostle, the readers should gain great confidence. Like, him saying that should cause the readers to kind of lean in and pay more attention. Because when it says that he's an apostle, it's like they're not just hearing from Peter, but they're actually hearing from God through Peter. And the first thing that Peter does is he reminds them of the reality of their identity. And in doing so, he's reminding us of our identity. You need to know the reality of your identity. So look at what it says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Do you see the wording? It says, to those who are. It doesn't say, to my friends. It doesn't say, to the believers. It says, to those who are. So what is he doing? He's saying, let me just remind you of who you are. Like, there's a lot of different ways he could have started, but he wants to start by reminding them of their identity, to those Who are, and here's the wording elect exiles. Elect exiles. Elect means chosen. Exiles means stranger or sojourner or pilgrim, which is interesting because when you put these two words together, it's like a contradiction. It's like elect exiles, it's like saying to the accepted rejects. Like it kind of doesn't make sense until you unpack it. He's saying, you guys are elect exiles. You guys are, you're chosen. And the language he uses is very interesting. Because if you read the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is known as God's chosen people, but now in the book of Peter, First Peter, Peter, Peter is going to use language that was reserved for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He's going to use it in reference to an audience that is primarily non-Jewish or Gentile. It's a Gentile audience. And he says, hey, just as God chose the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and set his love on them and had great purpose for them, the same is true for you now. You know, you are... In the family, you are God's chosen people as well. Look at what it says in First Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race. This is all language that God uses of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is amazing news where he's saying, look, God has chosen you. He's chosen you. He has set his love upon you. He has great purpose for you just as he had for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, okay? But they are elect exiles of what? Of the dispersion, okay? In exile, again, it can be translated stranger, sojourner, or pilgrim, and they are exiles of the dispersion. That word dispersion is a term that is normally used of Jews that were displaced from their homeland due to a sin or persecution. Now Peter is using the term in a metaphorical sense to refer to Gentiles. And what he's saying is that you guys aren't aren't necessarily scattered away from your homeland physically. You are scattered spiritually from your homeland, which is now heaven. When you put your trust in Christ, your citizenship is no longer in earth. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you have been scattered around Uh, Asia Minor, and you guys are living as spiritual minorities in that land. It's possible that you were living on the street that you grew up in. You could be in your same household, living next to the same neighbors, and yet you feel like a stranger or a foreigner now. Why? Because the way of Jesus is so contrary to the way of the world. And so these people that Peter is writing to they're experiencing suffering and persecution why because now they are they're exiles they are they are strangers they are foreigners to earth because their citizenship is in heaven. He's basically saying, look, it, it feels like a contradiction, but you, you live in the tension of being selected and accepted by God, but rejected by man. You are elect exiles. That's our identity. Like if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then a synonym for Christian is simply elect exile. That that's who we are, and this is going to sound far-fetched, but I'm just letting you know, like, when you became a Christian or an elect exile, your, your life in some ways should feel a little bit like Buddy the Elf from my favorite Christmas movie, Elf. And some of you are like, really? How are you going to get there? All right. So here's the deal. Remember, Buddy the Elf was born here in the United States, and yet what happened? He was adopted by someone from a different, wo- a different realm who set his affection on him and in, in shaped and molded his life as an elf. And so the rest of the movie is just a movie about Buddy the Elf living in the tension of kind of his reality that he doesn't necessarily feel right at home here in the United States. Like he believes in someone that no one else believes him. Santa! I know him and everyone's like, no, you don't. Like and 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 it goes down right there in the toy store. Like people are trying to make him wear different clothes. People aren't fully accepting him for who he who he is. He's living in that tension of like this because of his identity. It doesn't quite fit in his reality in the, in the United States. And, and the same should be true of us as elect aliens. What is our story? Our story is that, is that we were born here on earth, but we've been adopted by one from a different realm. So our citizenship is in heaven. And so the rest of our lives are spent living in this tension that, that we put our faith in one that many others do not believe in. And this world wants us to conform and and look how it looks, and yet that no longer feels right. It feels like not a fit. So this is the tension that we live in. This This is our identity. Don't forget it. And at the same time, beware when you are loved by God and loved by the world at the same exact time. Like you should be aware of the times that you have a strong love for God and a strong love for the world. And I'm not talking about loving the world in an evangelism sense. I'm saying that your affections are divided. The way of Jesus and the way of the world are so, such a contrast that it is, it's impossible for a Christian who is genuinely living in their identity as an elect exile it is impossible for an elect, elect exile to just fit in unnoticed going with the flow of the world doesn't work so peter starts by reminding them of the reality Of their identity. The second thing that Peter does is he goes on to give the reasons for their identity. He's giving us the reasons for our identity. How did we become elect exiles? Now, just warning you like, this is when we're going to begin to go down the theological path rabbit hole, but it is an invitation to think more deeply about your salvation. Like my hope is that for some of you, you will think more deeply about your salvation in your conversion than you ever have in your life. And the reason this is so important is because if you and I were to sit down and I were to just ask you, hey, tell me how you became a Christian I wonder if the majority of people's first word out of their mouth would be what? What word? I. I grew up in a Christian home and yada, yada, yada. I was going through a really tough time. I was searching for life and everything but Jesus. And then a friend invited me to church or shared the gospel with me. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ or I went to camp when I was in high school and heard the gospel taught, and then I invited Christ into my heart. All of those are good. Like, that is your story, and praise God for your story. I celebrate your story. The problem with that is that it puts you or me as the star of our conversion, Salvation. There's a better way to start your story. The best way to start your story is this. God set his affection on me long before I was ever born. That just out of the gate, it defines who the star of our salvation truly is. And the reason that I say that is just because of what we learn right here. So Peter is explaining to them How they became elect exiles. He's explaining the reasons for their identity. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He's going to give three different phrases, and all three of those phrases are modifying elect exiles. So, as I've already said, this is just an explanation of how we became elect exiles. It started, and it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, When you hear foreknowledge, what's your instant thought? Your tendency is probably going to be to equate knowledge with information. So you might read this and say, well, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. And you might think that it's kind of saying, well, it started with God having some intel of who we would become. And he had that intel long before we were born. But anytime that the scriptures refer to God knowing an individual, knowledge is almost synonymous with love. So here foreknowledge is practically synonymous with for loving. So let me give you an example. Abraham in the Old Testament is a great example. Genesis 18, 19 says this, For I have chosen him. Now that word chosen it, when you, if you were to look at your Bible, there's a good chance that chosen in your Bible has an asterisk next to it. And if you were to look at the bottom, next to that asterisk would be the word known. So the Hebrew word here that's been translated chosen, it can be translated as known. For I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Why? so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Think about the story of Abraham. Okay, the story of Abraham is that God chose in his sovereignty to set his affection upon a man who was coming from a pagan worshiping family. And he called this man named Abraham, who did not have saving faith yet, and he called him to leave his land and to go to another land. And before Abraham ever had saving faith, what did God do? God made massive promises to him that would write the story of the rest of the Old Testament and have huge implications on the New Testament. He promised Abraham that he would make from him a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. Israel. He promised that his descendants would have a land. That's the land of Canaan. And he promised this unbeliever that from him all the nations of the world would be blessed. He is basically saying, we now know what he was saying is that the savior of the world would, would be one of his descendants. Think about that. Here's a guy that there is nothing about Abraham that should cause God to be like, that's my guy. But God in his sovereignty chooses to set his affection upon Abraham and to pour out his love and accomplish his purposes on the earth through Abraham and ultimately his descendant, Jesus Christ. See, that in a way is our story. When it says that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, here's what you have to understand. Foreknowledge speaks to the incomprehensible sovereignty of God that God in eternity past chose each Christian to be his child. And God, this is so important. God did not choose each Christian to be his child because he had intel that one day we would choose him so he is just responding to what he knows will happen in the future, that we will choose him so he chooses us. No, it's the opposite. Foreknowledge means that God, in his incomprehensible sovereignty, has chosen to set his intentional and irresistible affection upon every Christian, and it is that affection which enables us To choose him. That's foreknowledge. That's why you see in John 1, verses 12 and 13, look at what it says. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're like, okay, sounds good. Like, I need to make a decision to believe in Jesus. Yes. But you were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see it? Like, if you know Jesus, it is because you have made a decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, that is true. But you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, not just as an act of your will, but because of the will of God in choosing you, he has enabled you to choose him. It's a massive reality that God has chosen to set his affection upon us in spite of us. When I was in college, uh, there was a, I was in college at Texas A&M University. Good to see you guys. There was this group of Aggies that decided to pick a high school football team in the state of Texas and just follow them for the season. So they, they wanted to choose a small town, so they chose Mart, Mart, Texas. And uh, here's the thing, no one had any connection to Mart. Mart is just a little bit outside of Waco. No one had any connection to Mart. No one's family was from Mart. No one had friends playing for Mart. They just decided, we're all in with Mart. So this group of guys, they made purple shirts that said Mart Madness on them. And every Friday night, they began to road trip to wherever Mart was playing. I went one time, like we drove two hours there and back to cheer for a team that we had no connection to. But these people were all in this group of guys. They would go decked out in Mart attire. They would stand on the front row and they would yell mightier than anyone else in the stands. They began to meet the parents of the players and become friends with them. They ended up on the field taking pictures with players. Why? I don't know. (laughs) That's just what college kids do but they chose to set their affection on a group of people when there was no reason for them to. And that, in such a minuscule way, is exactly what God has done with us. There is nothing that would beg him to do it. God, in his kindness, has set his affection upon us. Now, we're talking about something right here that is known as the doctrine of election. And the doctrine of election is a hot take. And it's a hot take because here's what people can say. They can say, they can hear me saying that God chose each Christian. And the argument is, well, if God chooses some but not everyone, then that makes him unfair. Like that's the problem with God. That's why I won't believe in God because he's not just, He's, he's unfair but here's how you need to think about it. The the way that you need to think about it is this. Every single person on the planet has willfully rebelled against God. And if you're new to Christianity or you're just exploring it, a good question for you to ask is this. When did I willfully rebel against God? I'll kind of turn the question back at you and ask this. Think of a day in your life that you haven't willfully rebelled against God. Name a day when there was no hint of selfishness in your heart or frustration toward another person or greed or inappropriate thoughts or unwholesome speech or envy or jealousy or disobedience to your parents or exaggerating or telling white lies or finding your greatest satisfaction from someone or something other than God. All of that is willful rebellion against God. I mean, selfishness has marked our lives from the youngest age. Like, I have never, I've never had to train my kids to be selfish. I've never had to teach my kids the word mine. Like, I've never sat down before a play date and been like, okay, guys, here's the deal. We're going to a play date. You're going to take your new toy with you. We don't want that kid to play with it, though, so... They're going to try and come up to play with your toy. And when they do, here's what you do. You grip it, you move it away, and you say, mine. <laughs> I didn't have to teach that. It's just—it's like they just knew it. You don't have to teach that. Why? Because every day, in the most subtle of ways, in the most overt ways, we have lived in willful rebellion against God. So here's what that means. It means that no one is in neutral standing with God. When we talk about election, people want to make it out to be like uh, choosing teams in elementary school, where we're all just we're all just standing there, and God's like, "Um, yeah, I'll take you. I'll take you. Yeah, and I'll take you." But the reality is that. No, no one is just standing in neutral position before God. We're all, we've all lived in active rebellion against him, which means we are all actively running away from Jesus Christ and toward hell. God, in his kindness... As every person in humanity has run willfully away from him and towards him, towards hell, God in his sovereignty and kindness has reached out and pulled countless individuals back. Now you can say, well, why wouldn't he just pull everyone back? I'll flip the question. Why should he pull anyone back? who is running away from him in willful rebellion. It is solely the unfathomable grace and mercy of God that he would pull anyone back. That's the foreknowledge of God. That's God setting his affection on some. Now here's what you have to understand to go back to that analogy of choosing teams at at elementary school no one stands before Jesus and is like, pick me, please, please, pick me, pick me, pick me. He's like, no, no. You behind the guy that's waving his hand saying, pick me. No, if you want to be on Jesus' team, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come to him today. Put your trust in him today. Surrender your life to him today. And you too can know his grace and mercy today. We're elect exiles according according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We see each person of the Trinity, each person of the Godhead at work in our salvation. Okay? This is I'm I'm asking you to think more deeply about your salvation because here's the thing: if you were to just peek behind the curtain of your salvation. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit turning dials and pulling levers all along the way. The one word that describes your salvation and mine is this, miracle. It is way more complicated than I grew up in a Christian home, I heard the gospel, and I put my faith in Jesus. No, when I say it's more complicated, I'm not saying coming to Jesus is more complicated. I'm just saying it is miraculous. What has happened behind the curtain? Starts with the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then it goes on and it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's even better reading to say through the sanctification of the Spirit. So how does God's foreknowledge get worked out? It gets worked out through the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, when, when the Bible uses the word sanctification, sanctification is a big word that simply means to be set apart or to be made holy. And when we think about sanctification, we think about uh, the lifelong process of looking more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. But here, Peter is using sanctification not to refer to the lifelong process of being conformed to the image of Christ. He's, he's He's talking about the Spirit's role in conversion, that moment at conversion where the Spirit of God sets you apart and declares you holy. So what does this practically look like? Well, whenever you in your past heard the gospel or a friend sat down with you and opened up the Bible and shared Jesus with you, in that moment, if you were to peek behind the curtain of that moment, you know what you would see? You would see the Spirit of God doing at least two things. The first thing that the Spirit of God was doing was convicting you of your sin. So whenever you, for the first time, understood, I think I'm not right with God. Like, I've, I have lived in rebellion against Him. I am a sinful individual. That was actually the Spirit of God pressing on you, saying, look, you are a sinner. You are unrighteous. Something will have to happen for you to be reconciled with a righteous God. The second thing that the Spirit was doing, like, that moment where you finally understood the truth of the gospel, in your need for a savior. That moment where you wanted to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God was regenerating you. This is what regeneration is. Bruce Demarest explains it this way. Regeneration is that work of the Spirit at conversion that renews the heart in life, the inner self, thus restoring the person's intellectual, volitional, moral, emotional, and relational capacities to know, love, and serve God. We refer to regeneration as being born again. So when it all made sense to you, you know what was happening? Is you were spiritually dead, and the Spirit of God was like a defibrillator to your soul, shocking you to life. He awakened you to understand the gospel in its greatest implications, in that moment, the Spirit of God was ripping you from the realm of the dead and He was locking you out of it for eternity. He was locking you out of the realm of the dead that you would never be able to return to it because you've been made spiritual, spiritually alive and you were to live with God for all of eternity. It was in that moment that He was setting you apart and making you holy. Holy. Why did he do that? Watch this. According to the foreknowledge of the God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. That's it for obedience to Christ. What's that that a reference to? That's actually a reference to your first yes to Jesus. Like when you understood the gospel and you prayed to receive Christ, that's what that is referring to. When the Spirit of God awakens you and you say yes to to Jesus for the first time, that is what has happened. And at the exact same time, you put your faith in Jesus Christ That work of the Spirit was also for sprinkling with His blood. That's a reference to complete cleansing and forgiveness of all of your sins. So it was in that moment. Whatever your greatest regret is, you just think about that moment in your life that if you could go back and have a do-over, you would take it. In the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that greatest failure was wiped clean from your life, wiped clean, complete forgiveness. Obedience and forgiveness. So it's just good for us to understand, like, in order to be a Christian, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. No one is born a Christian. No one is a Christian because their parents are Christians. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. And with it comes complete forgiveness of your sins. So I just want you to think back. Think back to the moment of your conversion. Can you put yourself there? Like for me, it was a long time ago by my parents' bed, kneeling on the floor with my mom who led me to Christ. That was the moment I became an elect exile. When was your moment? When did you become an elect exile? Just think of all that was happening behind the curtain for that to happen. God had set his affection upon you. He chose you. The Spirit convicted you, regenerated you, awakened you. You put your faith in Him, and there was complete forgiveness of your sins. So, we've talked about the reality of your identity. We've talked about the reasons for your identity. And then we finish with the result of your identity. What's the result? of being an elect exile, Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this is where all the wandering down the theological rabbit hole pays off because do you know what being in elect exile a Christian entitles you to? Here's what it entitles you to. It entitles you to a life saturated with grace and peace. That's it, that is the beauty of being an elect exile is that you qualify for your life now to be saturated with grace and peace. No one else on the planet that doesn't know Jesus is able to experience that type of life. This is what is ours in Christ, a life of grace and peace. What's grace? When we talk about grace, what are we talking about? We are talking about unearned, undeserved favor. And the reason that I need everyone to hear what I'm saying right now is that here's my concern for people, especially at Watermark Community Church. I believe that this is a church of doers. Like, I love that this church is full of activators. Like, you want to do something. You want your faith to matter, and so you want to leave this place, and you want to go and do something, which is awesome. But I just want to make sure that you don't miss the fact that the Christian life is not primarily about doing for God. The Christian life is primarily about God doing in and through you. And so when you think about like, what is the thing that cultivates intimacy with God? If you naturally think of all the things that you do to get close to God, you're missing it. That is a life of works. That is a life of trying to earn God's pleasure, earn his favor. No, his favor isn't earned. It's received. It's been granted to you out of the the unfathomable, deep, sovereign affection of God. This is grace. We want to be a church that is marked by grace. Think about who is writing this. It's Peter. It's Peter. It's a fisherman. He had nothing to offer. Jesus chose him. This is the guy who denied Jesus three times. Jesus chose him to be one of the people he builds his church on. From start to finish for Peter's life, it was all, it was all God. It was all God's work. Is the same true for you from start to finish? Would you just rest in the fact that God has set his affection on you? Does that do anything to you when I say it? He has set his affection on you. He's chosen you. He has pursued you relentlessly. Is your life marked by grace? Some of you are like, okay, yeah, that's good. TA, I want my life to be marked by grace, so tell me what to go do. Okay. I'll tell you what to do. Allow yourself to be loved by God. You're like, yeah, I know God loves me. Now tell me what to do. Allow yourself to be loved by God. Sit with him until your soul is overwhelmed by the reality that he set his affection on you. And he who began a good work in you is going to carry it out to completion and there's nothing you can do to ruin that. Grace In peace. Anyone not experiencing peace right now? Like anyone anxious? Anyone not sleep well last night? Good, everyone's good. No one takes melatonin in here. And that's just the light stuff. No one's hooked on Ambien like nobody here. Everyone's having great night's sleeps. Everyone, no one's restless or frustrated in life. Great. Praise God. (laughs) No, hey, we are, Christ has purchased peace for us and yet so many of us are so anxious. We're so restless. And yet, he has set his affection upon us. He is at work in our lives. If, if you ever question if God cares, all you have to do is look at the fact that you know Jesus Christ. You don't know Jesus because you found Jesus. You know Jesus because God set his affection on you. He chose you. He convicted you. He really, do I really have to go through it again? If you wonder if he cares, all you have to do is look at what he's done because it will remind you that even when you can't see him doing something, he's doing something. I mean, I think about who is writing this. It's Peter. Peter was a guy who suffered a lot for his faith. I think about this one story in the book of Acts where James has been put to death by Herod because of his faith. And what does Herod do? He sees how pleasing it is to the people that he put James to death that he arrests Peter. And the plan is, we think, is for him to put Peter to death. Look at what we find Peter doing. In Acts chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping. It's peace. How can Peter have that kind of peace? Well, because he was in a really sweet setup, even though he was chained to soldiers. He was in a really sweet setup because if he were to die, he was going to go and be with God. And if he was going to live, he was going to get to see God supernaturally, miraculously sustain him each day until death. Here's the good news. If you're right with God, then everything else in the world can be wrong if you're right with God. Everything in your world can be crashing down if you're right with God. Why? Because God's either going to take you home to be with him or he's going to miraculously sustain you even through the the toughest nights. And one day he will take you to where he is. There's peace. He has set his affection upon you. He's with you. He has been working. He is working. And he will work until the day he takes you home. I just think about that that note that my coach wrote me where he just said, this is not who I know you to be. And I just wonder if this, this morning, this message is in some way a note from God to you. Just looking back over the last few weeks or the last few months and him just saying, this isn't who I know you to be. You're elect exiles. Don't forget that. I've chosen you. I've set my affection upon you according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifying work of the Spirit Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. So this morning, my encouragement to you is this, remember who you are. Let's pray together. And I just want to ask right now, I just want to encourage you to do business with the Lord. Just take a moment right now. Would you just let that sink in that God has set his affection upon you? Is your life marked by grace and peace? If not, sit with the Lord on it and invite his work in your life. And Look, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you're like, today I want to be on Jesus' team, there is nothing keeping you. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right now, in this moment, would you cry out to God through prayer? Would you invite Jesus in to be your Lord and your Savior? We love you, Lord Jesus. Would you come and move in our hearts? We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for all that you have done behind the curtain to bring us into a right relationship with you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.